Ready when you are. Okay, so ROV just taking up position, just currently at node 07A to inspect the vertical diagonal member of 057. Currently just at row one. We're inboard at the moment, looking outboard towards the outside of the jacket. ROV, remotely operated vehicle. And we'll work our way down to the six o'clock on the underside. As you can see, marine growth obscuring much of the finer detail there around this nodal connection of NW078. That said, no signs of any gross defects or any signs of any damage being observed. As we sort of come round right underneath that node now, looking in the small gap there where the marine growth is colonised, and again, no signs of any corrosion or bare metal being observed. So as we uh, now pull away, we'll go in for contact CP. Okay with that, RIV? CP. Cathodic protection. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to move in. Excellent. And we've got a CP reading minus 923, yeah, minus 923 uh, millivolts there for our CP. So good reading, well within the given criteria and the anomaly criteria for this all campaign this year. So I'll be manoeuvre out and we'll start sending up the member to the nodal connection of NW068 the cross node member. Single pass required for this general visual inspection and CP as we work our way up at about the minus 41 and a half meters, so not very far away, minus 41 meters as can be seen by our Coavis task list. We have got a proximity CP. So we will sort of go in for that fairly soon. And the ROV, just if you oblige, please. Yeah, moving in for proximity. So the ROV just uh, manoeuvring in there slightly now, you can see it just going in sort of to the outboard of this jacket member. And we've got a steady uh, proximity slightly higher than our contact, minus 940 millivolts. So it, once again, good reading obtained, good cathodic protection on this member of VD057. This jacket may be somewhere in the North Sea, but the person inspecting it, with eight screens in front of him and a cup of tea on his desk, is safely on shore hundreds of miles away at Fugro's Remote Operations Centre in Aberdeen. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And in this episode, we have partnered with Fugro to learn how new technology from autonomous vessels is enabling work to move from some of the most inhospitable and dangerous waters on Earth to a network of warm, comfortable onshore offices around the world. We also talk to the UK government's Maritime and Coast Guard Agency about the challenge of developing regulations that keep up with new technology. And we learn about a new piece of kit that could change the way that offshore work is carried out forever. But first, let's go back to Aberdeen and find out what was on those eight screens in the Remote Operations Centre. My name is Greg Dixon. My job title is a Remote Operations Centre Superintendent. Greg explains that audio we have just heard was a senior inspection engineer, Chris Ord, who was viewing the data being sent back by the ROV pilot, who was sitting on the oil rig itself and manoeuvring the ROV. So the inspection was being carried out within one of our operations rooms, of which there are six screens for the inspector to look at and two larger overview screens. Coming back to the operations centre are the ROV cameras. They have mutual PDF drawings that they can both see, highlight, etc. So 
everything they need to communicate effectively is is in front of the ROV pilots and also in front of the inspectors to enable them to conduct the inspection remotely from our remote operations centre. In the past, all of this work would have been carried out from a vessel offshore, with data not reaching the mainland for weeks. So it is not just safer, it is weeks faster. In one recent project, the vessel manager had the ROV flying at up to four times the speed as it would during a standard pipeline general visual inspection, which, along with the ability to perform cloud processing with personnel based in the remote operations centre in Aberdeen, the offshore phase of the project was completed in 17 days, rather than the estimated 25 days that it would have taken using traditional pipeline inspection methods. In addition, the client's pipeline engineering team had access to the digital images and draft pipeline data during the project, rather than having to wait until after the vessel demobilisation. Here's Greg again. So the main intent of the remote operations centre is obviously to technologically move forward, but also to bring those that work offshore onshore. The mantra being that if your job is to look at a screen, then you will do it from onshore not traditionally offshore where you would normally do. It isn't just inspection of offshore equipment that has been moved back to the mainland. From the new remote operations centre, vessels and infrastructure can be positioned, surveyed and monitored, as well as the local conditions from the seabed to the weather examined and mapped. To do this has meant major investment in communications equipment and remote operations hardware and software. Ultimately, remote operations enables us to do more intelligent things. This is Alistair McKee. I am the Director for Remote Operations within the Europe and Africa region at Fugro. To Alistair, who has spent over a decade working offshore himself as a surveyor, the benefits of moving to this way of working are obvious. As the world goes towards remote and autonomy and, and computers and, and, and equipment gets more intelligent, we want to use the people and, and our, our employees in the best way that we can. And actually, we can do that far more effectively remotely by having our people within the one center and one area of operations, uh, controlling multiple vessels or multiple systems and sensors on vessels. And if we can have our people working onshore rather than offshore, then we reduce our and our clients' HSE exposure. We reduce the, the carbon footprint of our teams moving around the world. The centre in Aberdeen isn't the only one. There are seven in total, but it is the most advanced. The Remote Operations Centre in Aberdeen is, it really is a world-class facility. It's one of our seven remote operations centres around the world uh, and really probably the most capable, if you like, in terms of size and, and technical capability. We have the ability to fly ROVs and control USVs simultaneously from the room, so up to eight ROVs at the one time. USVs, uncrewed surface vessels. We have the ability to house remote surveyors, remote data processors, remote geophysicists, and then carry out full remote inspection with video and audio communication two-way to, to the asset offshore. The, the facility uh, itself has dedicated VSAT uh, solutions, so the satellite connection to effectively have the, the communication with offshore. Uh, we have dedicated VSAT, we have dedicated power, dedicated communications, really to try and build the redundancy. This gives a command and control centre, and also gives the team more options for staffing, which again makes the work more efficient. We are 
ultimately able to to be far more flexible with remote operations. If you imagine a vessel offshore that has, you know, a crew of thirty people on on it from a, a project perspective, they have a very definite role. They have a very uh, definitive set of tasks that they can do. Very particular sets of skills, skills acquired over very long careers. And if the vessel ha- has to change uh, mission or change project, it's it usually typically then requires the vessel to come back to change these people out for different people or different skill sets or whatever. If we can do that remotely, then we can manage that to change far quicker and far more efficiently, hopefully removing the need to bring the vessel in uh, and removing the need to, to delay the, the continuation of projects and operations so we can use our teams more effectively. But the most important advantage of the entire remote working strategy is that it's safer. Offshore work is highly regulated to keep people safe. And we are going to explore this more later. But there is only so much that you can control when you're in a vessel in the North Sea, where waves of over 25 metres have been recorded. The sea in a remote location, it's just inherently more dangerous than it is in an onshore location that that can be controlled far, far easier. And if the worst things to happen, if there was to be an emergency in an onshore location, it's far easier to deal with than it is in an offshore location. By moving the work onshore, the team hope that the jobs in this industry will become more accessible. We want to open the ability to work offshore up to anybody. And it's something that, that sounds a bit funny, but you know, if you look at the typical demographic of the offshore workforce, certainly in the, in the North Sea, but do it from an onshore facility so we can have a far more diverse workforce that have the ability to go home to their families each day, each night, uh, and and live a a fairly normal life rather than going offshore for two, three, four, five, sometimes even more weeks at a time where they are very much away, which traditionally does put quite a lot of people off uh, working offshore. Someone who has first-hand experience of the difficult work-life balance that working offshore entails is Ross McFarlane. I was at sea for a a long period of time. My wife is currently at sea. She's actually just left to go back to sea just now. And from a, a family point of view, we had to, we took a decision that if we were both at sea, it essentially wouldn't work. It, it closes a lot of opportunities for us. So one of them would stay at home, which is why Ross is there while his wife is still at sea. That's quite an unusual situation. Um, within the maritime industry globally, there's, there's just a roughly 1.2 million seafarers, of which only 2% of them are women. A big part of that is in this lifestyle choice that you have to make. So by taking the lifestyle choice out of it, it makes the industry a lot more appealing to a, lot, a much broader range of people. Safety is on Ross's mind as well. You are taking your life in your hands by, by leaving. You don't know if you'll come back, essentially. And that is because no matter how highly regulated, professional and careful mariners are, there are sometimes incidents that no one could predict. I've got the European figures. Between 2011 and 2018, there was uh, 25,614 ships involved in some sort of incident. From that, 230 ships were lost. There was 23,073 casualties or incidents, of which 665 were deemed to be very serious. There were 7,000... 694 persons injured and 696 fatalities from that. So you you can see that from the statistics alone, the dangers of going to sea are very real. Not surprisingly then, Ross is passionate about training and supporting Fugro's staff in making the move from offshore to onshore. 
His formal role is USV Policy and Public Affairs Advisor, meaning that he is working with government and industry to ensure that the regulations keep up with this remotely operated technology, which, to be frank, they just can't. At the top of the regulatory tree is the International Maritime Organization, IMO, which sets the conventions that the rest of the world use for creating regulations. But it has a lot of members that need to be consulted. 177, to be precise. When it comes to defining legislation, there's a lot of voices that need to be heard. So the process is quite long and drawn out. At the moment, the estimates are that there'll be no regulations in place from the IMO until at least the end of the decade, if not later. But for an industry where regulations are critical, this lack of formal guidance can act as a barrier to its use. Fortunately, the UK government, through its new Maritime 2050 strategy, is committed to making sure that the company can bring in new technology, such as uncrewed vessels. So within the UK specifically, there's a strategy called the Maritime 2050 strategy, which is all about revolutionising the maritime industry. And that involves the technology, the people that are involved in the regulations. As part of that, there was a, a a working group set up called MarLab, there was different aspects to Marlab. One of them was a, a regulatory scoping exercise where they, they looked at the UK Shipping Act to determine what gaps or barriers there were to USVs working. There was also a, a series of interviews conducted by Marlab where they went they went round the country interviewing kind of key players within the, the USV developments and asked them essentially what the problems are. What that's evolved into now is we have a regular communication with them at MCA, advising them what sort of work we are doing, what issues we're having, how we think they can help us. So it's kind of, it's become a reciprocal process, essentially, where we are looking for them to create the legislation, but we're also helping them to create the legislation at the same time. So it's, it's become circular in nature. Um, and that's a real benefit, I think, that it means that what we'll create is, is fit for purpose. The government body spearheading drafting of new legislation is the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, which is a subsidiary of the Department for Transport. The MCA is the UK's maritime safety regulator. We are responsible for ensuring vessels are safe in UK waters and that everybody on board a vessel in UK waters is also safe. As well as that, we are responsible for the legislation and regulating and developing that regulation and policy and also the uh, search and rescue of issues at sea. So the HM Coast Guard provide 24-hour search and rescue service as well. This is Dr Katrina Kemp. I work with Maritime and Coast Guard Agency as our Smart Ships and Automation Policy Officer. On a day-to-day basis, this is about facilitating our regulatory response to autonomous ships which could be remotely operated or eventually fully autonomous vessels. Facilitating the regulatory response is massively challenging at a time when technology moves faster than anyone can possibly respond to it. One of the challenges with with innovation generally and regulation is pace at which we're able to change regulation is a lot slower than the pace at which innovation and technology changes. The technology and 
innovation that industry is using is speeding up. The sensors are changing, the cameras are changing, the ideas are developing much, much quicker than we are able to develop the regulation. However, we don't want to be developing regulation as a knee-jerk reaction. We need to be doing it in a, a well-thought-through process to ensure the regulation we do develop is right to ensure a safe maritime environment and the safety of other people in that maritime environment. So it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that's it's the right challenge. The challenge for us is ensuring that when we do write that regulation, we don't restrict ourselves to what we understand today. We allow there to be space for that innovation and that technology that will continue to develop. The good news for companies using advanced technical methods like Fugro is that the MCA have already drafted a new workboat code, which includes the use of autonomous vehicles. What we have been doing is, as part of a review of the UK's workboat code, is to start drafting some regulations we can include in there that will allow the operation of remotely operated unmanned vessels. And this is our first step into creating some regulations for autonomous vessels. These regulations, which cover boats up to 24 metres, are scheduled to be finalised in 2022, much earlier than the international standards, which could be seen as a reflection on the UK's ambition to become a global leader in the maritime sector. Our goal is to become a global leader in maritime autonomy, harnessing our existing technological and maritime strengths and building on work that's set out in the government's industrial strategy. So Maritime 50 has set out plans and encourages innovation and the development of technology, both of which squarely sit with autonomous vessels or fit in with autonomous vessels. And they've developed a specific a technology route map that uses autonomy as a case study for how that can go forward. But before we can be a world leader, there are some tricky regulatory challenges to contend with. So the maritime regulations are currently written with people in mind. They're there to protect the people either on board the vessel or assuming that there is a person that can look after the vessel. So to allow autonomous ships to operate, we need to identify what are the barriers in those regulations. So, for example, in Safety of Life at Sea... That's the Convention for Safety of Life at Sea of 1974. There are requirements to carry life-saving equipment because there are people on board that require life-saving equipment if there's a problem. However, for an autonomous vessel, do we really need it to be carrying additional equipment that could potentially be an environmental hazard if there is no one on board that needs it? Another issue is that on a crewed vessel, ultimate responsibility lies with the captain, a term known in the maritime industry as master's responsibility. But what happens when there isn't a master on board? Here is Ross again. A good case of that is if there's a collision at sea or if there's any kind of violations of regulations when the vessel comes into port, the vessel will be arrested and the master will be taken into custody. That then encourages um, encourages the company to engage with them to kind of define why that happened and follow follow a proper legal process. If you then apply that to a USV where it can be operated from a rope center in Norway or Brazil, whereas the vessel can be operating in off the coast of Africa or North America, say, if that same situation occurs where there's a collision or a breach of regulations, 
when the vessel comes into port, there's nobody there to arrest, essentially. So that's kind of a fundamental flaw within maritime legislation at the moment, and that's kind of one of the key barriers, essentially. And in terms of the master, this is one of the questions that we we will have international discussions about, and we're having into, we're having conversations about in terms of our drafting of the workboat code, and we have different ideas. We don't want to be changing everything so it fits a remote control vessel, but equally we need to make sure that what we have is fit for purpose. So, for example, if we can say that a master who is a person in command of a ship, conveniently it doesn't say whether that person has to be on the ship, it just says that a master is in command of the vessel. So that could work in our favour and we could use it, but we still need to have that conversation with a, with a lawyer to ensure that actually our interpretation is actually a suitable interpretation. Legal issues around jurisdiction, which Katrina describes as a thorny issue, are still yet to be resolved. Another area that the new regulations will need to consider is what is expected of the Remote Operations Centre for these USVs. So for example, a remotely operated vessel, by its name, is remotely operated from a location that's not on board that vessel. So what do we expect them to do in that remote operations centre, that remote operation location? So we're able to give them some guidance and we're still developing that. This is still early early days. What is needed? What rules should they be following? And, and how should they expect those remote operators to be trained? So that the developments in the workboat code will give them some guide, will give them a structure within which these vessels can operate. And it gives them that reassurance and that support that the UK is supporting and facilitating this industry. More specifically? So for remote operators, in a remote operations centre, what we would expect is that they have the same equipment or the same information they would have as if they were standing on the bridge of that vessel looking out doing a normal watchkeeping role. So we have to make sure that how we word that in the workboat code gives them the direction of what they need so that you you have cameras that provide you visual feedback or you have sensors that give you additional information. You have potentially radar or other other feedback and data. But the challenge we have is making sure that we don't confine ourselves to our current understanding of technology. We need to make sure that we give them the flexibility to develop as technology develops because it's developing very, very quickly, but still ensure that they're able to operate in a safe manner as if they were on board a vessel. Debate is also ongoing about how to define autonomous vessels. So one of the one of the biggest challenges that not just the UK, but internationally we have, is how do we define an autonomous vessel? We can talk for a long time about how we should define this and what they should be. Internationally, we have come up with a set of four high-level definitions, but solely for the purpose of reviewing the regulations to give us some structure for how we identify the barriers. Katrina says that they have made it clear that there are degrees of autonomy rather than levels. It's not a hierarchy, and there is no suggestion that more is better. It's just for classification purposes. Although these definitions might change, they allow regulators to put these hypothetical boats through the proposed regulations to test out what works and what doesn't. And of course, 
all of these new procedures and requirements create another massive challenge in itself, training. For the time being, we say that a remote operator should be trained as if they were on board the vessel. But we do appreciate that in the future, that may need to change. But this gives us a solid starting point. Other gaps include sensors and cameras. We need to identify what types of sensors we expect them to have or how much flexibility we give them in terms of saying a sensor to provide this type of information. We also need to clarify areas to do with satellite communications because that's going to be vitally important for a remotely operated vessel with somebody sat in a shore-based centre with the vessel out at sea. And it's important that that connection, that communication between operator and vessel is in place. So these are some of the gaps that we need to, to start filling. When it comes to the operator, Ross says that they need to learn to use sensors rather than senses. In order to prepare people, we need to, we need to teach them how to use their, the sensors and the, the data that we can provide them rather than the senses that feel and touch, essentially. I think one of the, one of the key aspects that's going to be part of this is, is the use of simulators. Training for onshore work has an enormous advantage compared to training for offshore work. The way we learn at the moment is through classrooms, yeah, reading books, you do exams. You can go into simulators to, to simulate the experience of being at sea, but that's, that only takes you so far. A simulator can never truly replicate the experience of working offshore, so there is a skills fade when you actually come to do the job. For onshore work, though... What we can do now, though, is moving into an office environment where we'll have a, a fixed setup. We know what the room will look like, we know what the computers will look like, we know what the interfaces are going to look like. We can replicate that 100% within a simulator now. So we can essentially train you in the environment that you're going to be learning in. So the, the skills fade, the skills loss between training and operating is essentially eliminated now. Simulators training can go even further, putting operators through a gauntlet known as above real-time training. The other thing that we're looking into is this, this term, above real-time training. What above real-time training is, is you take someone, you train them up to a normal standard, an everyday operational standard, and then you start throwing them into all sorts of crazy situations. You start removing sensors from them, you put them in situations where they would never have experienced before, and prepare them to the point where you know they can deal with out of the ordinary situations and what that does is it makes the day-to-day -day operations a lot safer because that's that's mundane for them now it's stolen from nasa that uh, concept that's what nasa do and while we are thinking about preparing for the future do you remember at the beginning of the episode where we mentioned a new piece of kit a new piece of kit that could change the way that offshore work is carried out forever here is ivar de Jocelyn de jong Global Director for Remote Inspection Solutions at Fugro, talking about SeaKit, an uncrewed surface vehicle that is highly versatile and can be configured to suit project needs. Iva breaks SeaKit down into four components. The remote inspection solution consists of four main components. The main component, the, the, the most important one is the vessel, of course, because that is, that is, that is the, the host for, for the whole solution. The USV itself is very slim at just over 2 metres wide and 12 metres long. It weighs 12 tonnes and is capable of a maximum speed of around 6 knots. It can stay out, uh, out offshore for close to 150 days at, uh, at low speed, at, uh, at around 3 knots. Endurance here is calculated without an ROV payload. If operations, you obviously consume a lot more energy, a lot more fuel. 
so that uh, that limits the uh, the endurance to less than 30 days. But uh, yeah, the the vessel is equipped with a couple of large battery packs and a uh, a generator, which is uh, which is charging these uh, these battery packs, and that uh, that's all been done with a with a fuel tank of uh, of 2,000 liters. It is this 2,000 liter fuel tank that allows the vessel to stay at sea for such a long period, three to four months. Next comes the ROV. This vessel is hosting a remotely operated vehicle, an ROV, an underwater robot, uh, which is connected to the, to the, to the vessel with, a, with an umbilical. This can be launched uh, when the vessel is close to, uh, to an asset. And that can be a, a pipeline or a, a offshore jacket but also a, a turbine, a wind turbine, or a substation for uh, where, the, where the wind turbines are connected to. This ROV is what actually undertakes the inspection. So we have a vessel, we have a ROV, a remotely operated vehicle. Then we have, of course, the, the software which is facilitating the data acquisition. The ROV has an array of sensors, some that mimic human ones, such as visual sensors but also, also other types of sensors, electromagnetic sensors or, or all kinds of physical measurements that we can do on assets. These data are collected, but obviously you need software to, to, to process these data, to visualize them for clients, to deliver them to clients. So that is, that is the third main pillar, the data, the data acquisition software. And then, as this vessel will be roaming the seas, cutting a lonely path through the waves, far away from any communications infrastructure, it needs a satellite uplink. So there is a big satellite dome on the back of the vessel. All the information which is going to the vessel, but also coming from the vessel, goes through the satellite uh, connection to our remote operation center. And the vessel should be capable of operating up to state four on the Douglas Sea Scale. These are moderate conditions with a wave height of up to 2.5 meters. In the Middle East, this would mean a utilization of over 95%. But somewhere like the North Sea? In the North Sea, uh, a lot less, because uh, we, uh, <laughs> it's simply uh, <laughs> not so nice weather over here. But before long, less temperate, shall we say, sea environments like our own North Sea will be accessible more days of the year. What we will definitely do is uh, build a larger circuit. So we are uh, already looking into uh, the design of a 24-meter circuit to, uh, to host a, a bigger ROV, the, our new electric ROV, and to operate in a broader, uh, in a wider weather window. So the story around a bigger vessel, a larger window uh, comes up, that, that, that if we have a 24-meter circuit, we can, we can do more work, specifically in, uh, in northern North Sea environments and, uh, and, and, and further offshore uh, environments. Iva is already looking ahead, thinking of new ways SeaKit could be put to work and keeping people out of danger. We are also already anticipating on using the SeaKit for uh, remote construction support activities. Um, and then you can think about uh, services uh, in relation to cable lay, pre-lay surveys, lay support and, uh, and, and post-lay surveys. But in addition to that, the vessel is also very capable of hosting uh, geophysical sensors with which we can acquire hydrographic data or seismic data for the site investigation phase of, of the asset lifetime. So if you, if you, if you look at the, the overall lifetime cycle of offshore assets, the sea kit can, can play a role from, uh, from the very first beginning 
the, the design and engineering phase all the way to, uh, to the decommissioning. Even with COVID, which we have to mention at least once per episode, remote operations and automation can give major benefits. The reduced staffing levels on board current vessels have aided tremendously during the recent pandemic, with fewer crew arriving and crew changing. This can only improve in the future. This is all indicative of the pace at which we are developing remote and autonomous vehicles. The first generation of the sea kits will be with us soon. I foresee that, uh, that the majority of uh, Fugro's inspection activities will actually be executed by a, uh, a solution which is based on the, on the sea kit. First vessel is being manufactured uh, right now and that will go into the water at the end of the summer. Um, by that time we will also have completed uh, the build of the first uh, electric ROV in uh, our uh, ROV factory in Singapore. The sector is developing at an incredible rate and the potential for remotely operated vehicles is clearly there. With the right skills and training, the right equipment and the right legislative framework, the way we operate in the maritime environment will go from strength to strength. As it states in the Maritime 2050 strategy, any leading maritime nation only holds that position because it adapts and plans for the future. The aims are intentionally ambitious, so as not to risk limiting the progress that might otherwise be possible. But it all comes back to people. And here is Alistair again. He has had a long, enjoyable career offshore, but he acknowledges that the inherent risk needs to be eliminated, something that can now be done with remote operations. I spent just over 10 years offshore, and I'll be honest when you say I had a great time. I loved it, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Uh, I got to work all over the world, uh, in most of the continents, in, in lots of far-flung places, some of them nice, some of them not so nice. You know, I, I was on helicopters regularly. I've been transported onto vessels, barges, rigs by crane, by helicopter, and by, by, by other small boat. Uh, and it really was, it was great fun. But I think now if I look back to the amount of time that I spent moving around, uh, adapting to new environments and everything else, I, I think, you know, had the, the remote operations capability that we've got now been available, uh, that would by far have been the better way to do it. You know, if I can avoid being lifted onto a floating structure in the middle of the North Sea at three o'clock in the morning in pitch black uh, as we're about to install the jacket, then, then, you know, we absolutely should do. And if we can use remote operations to use our people without having to fly them all over the world um, to lots of different locations, then I think that would be fantastic. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was hosted by me, Alex Conacher, and Rian Owen. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervisor is John Young, and our own Puppet Master is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Fugro and the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency. <laughs>